Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for your word. Thank you again that you gave us something tangible to hold on to, that we could go to that's perfect, that, can, that is um, joy and encouragement for our souls. I lift up those who are, who are in China. Um, I just thank you, Lord, that they're going to minister. I pray you would give them wisdom, Lord, in, in leading and in uh, encouraging the cokers and the others there. I pray that their time would be sweet, that their fellowship would be deep and rich. And I pray that um, they would come back here feeling loved and built up in the gospel and that those in China would feel spurred on to, to proclaim the great truth of Jesus to those who needed to hear it. And I just pray, Jesus, that um, you'll put your protection over them, you'll put your grace over them. And I pray this morning, Lord, that your word will just be illumined. I confess that I am weak and broken, sinful, full of anxiety and pride and, and selfishness. And I just pray, Lord, that you would work through that, that you would bring yourself glory. And I pray that we would leave feeling um, stirred up toward love and good deeds. In your name, amen. So before we go into the text, I want to give you a little background on um, kind of what we've just come from. So if you look at the earlier part of chapter 4, you'll see in verses um, kind of 6 through 9, where Paul is talking about not having any anxiety, but by, by casting that on the Lord, you'll see him telling um, the Philippians, take every, every burden that you have through prayer and petition, take it and give it to God so that his peace can fill you up. So um, again, as a reminder, Paul's under arrest. He's in Rome. He's writing back to the Philippians where he's gone to encourage them to plant a church. Um, he didn't encourage them to plant the church. He planted the church and encouraged them. And now he's writing a letter back to encourage them again. Um, so he's not, you know, he's not relaxing at the four seasons on the beach here with no anxiety. He, he's, you know, he can, he's in a stressful situation. But he also, in verses 10 through 13, he tells them that he's learned contentment in all, all situations. So whether he's been in great abundance or he's been in desperate need, he's learned how to be content in all situations. And I think you see a connection here with Romans 8.28, which is where Paul is writing, encouraging the Roman church. And he, he says in there, um, we know that for those who love God, for those who are, according, who are called according to his purpose... All things work together for good. So Paul's in, in, under arrest. He's writing letters out, but he hasn't lost hope. He hasn't, he hasn't fallen into despair that God has abandoned him or that the gospel is now being forgotten or doesn't have its power. So, and, I, and I think you see the connection there back to Romans 8 where he's saying, I believe that anything that happens to me, whether it's, it's death itself, is God's perfect will and will bring him the most glory. So he has this kind of deep bedrock of peace that nothing is going to shake him no matter what comes. He was truly grateful for their gift. We'll see that as, as we go on. So it's not that um, you, you could read that wrong if you say, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. And then he talks about the gift. It could almost seem like the gift is pointless or meaningless. And that's not what Paul's saying here. He did have deep gratitude for the gift. But we'll see he has even deeper gratitude for what God's doing in their hearts that they would desire to participate in the advancement of the gospel. Uh, and again, I think we see a connection here back to Romans 8. So I'm going to read verse 32. The reason Paul cannot have any anxiety, that he can have this peace, even though he's gone through hardships in his life, is because he knows God did not spare his own son, 
And if that's the most important, precious gift that God um, can give for salvation, he's not going to hold anything else back from Paul. So Paul says in 8.32, or from, for us, from us for that matter, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul has this deep-seated peace because he knows God's always working for my good and God's always going to provide. Even if that means I die, God is providing for me what is best. What is best for me, what's best for the church, and what brings him the most glory. So I think it's important to kind of have that, that mindset as we go into these last 10 verses. So um, let's, read, let's start with verse 14. Uh, so he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now, you may be thinking, what does trouble mean? Um, well, for Paul, it meant he's had, he's had a lot of trouble in his life. Um, he was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a, a poisonous snake where people thought he was going to die within five or ten minutes. Um, so he's had a lot of problems in his life and a lot of hardship, probably more I mean, I've had some hard things happen in my life, but nothing, you know, to that level where people have stoned me and left me thinking I was dead to just lie there and be eaten by the vultures. Um, but Paul had had those things happen in his life. And, you know, God had always provided for him. He'd always taken care. So Paul did know what real trouble was. Um, I think one thing that's important, when you think about Paul, it can be easy to think that he's this kind of superhero, superhuman Christian, because he went and he planted all these churches. He wrote all these books of the Bible. And he's always talking about the advance of the gospel. And he can just seem like this kind of laser-focused, emotionless dude. And he uses the word trouble here. And I think that's a, it, it's, by God's grace, it's a small window into that Paul was a normal guy. Okay, so he wasn't excited when he got beaten. He wasn't excited when he got arrested. He, he didn't, he may have even expected those things, but he still acknowledges that it was trouble, and we will go through trouble. Um, you know, the scriptures even, even talk about that, that in this life we'll have trouble, but take heart, Christ is overcome. And so it's always comforting for me because I kind of have Paul pictured as this, like, kind of quasi-human, and, and, and so he doesn't really count because he wasn't really human. But he was really human, and we're going to see later that it's the same God that dealt with Paul that deals with you and me in these circumstances. And so... You know, I think it's important to notice that Paul was kind of normal after all, um, and he did really hurt, and, you know, he did get excited about things and cry about things, and he did feel sorrow, and he did feel pain. Um, his, his focus here is that um, he's excited that they were excited to help in the advancement of the gospel. Um, and so we're going to see he appreciates their gifts, and, and it refreshes him, but he's much more excited about what God's doing in their hearts, that they would even care to participate in the gospel, because apart from Christ, there's no reason why we should ever really desire to help anybody. So that's a manifestation of the Spirit working. All right, so let's go on to verse 15. Um, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So he was in Macedonia, and if you go online, you can look up, there's a Republic of Macedonia, a modern-day Republic of Macedonia. The Macedonia in the time that Paul's writing was much bigger. So it included portions of Greece, Bulgaria, Albania, Serbia, Kosovo, and the modern-day uh, Republic of Macedonia. So I'm sure you're all great with geography. You have exactly pictured in your mind that land area now that I'm talking about. Um, but it was a much bigger province, and, and Paul planted, we know, at least multiple churches in Macedonia. So he planted the church at Philippi. He planted the church in Thessalonica. He went through some other cities. So if you read uh, in Acts, you'll see that he, he on his trip from uh, Philippi down to Thessalonica, he goes through uh, Amphipolis and Apoll Apollonia. And so we don't know if he stopped in those cities or if he just, they were kind of overnights on his way down to Macedonia. Um, but it highlights the fact that they were connected to him even after he left. And, and we're going to see later that they kind of gave to his ministry early and they gave often. Um, and so Paul's custom is he would go into these towns. His, his church planting strategy was he would go in 
And in the town, there would be a temple. This is a little different than today. Um, there'd be kind of a central place where people would go to worship. Uh, it might be the Jewish temple. There might be pagan temples. But God, Paul would show up where kind of people seeking spiritual things would be. And then he would start to reason with them. He'd start to explain the gospel. And then, you know, if God poured out fruit, people would, would convert to Christianity. They'd realize the beauty of Jesus. And then he would sometimes have to remove from the temple because things would get hot and people would get upset. And so he might have to go to a different place in the city and he would make disciples, kind of train them up. And then when he felt confident that there were, you know, people who could be elders and leaders in the church and they could, you know, govern themselves and there were mature believers who were pursuing the Lord, then he would kind of move on and, and plan another church. So, um, so he has a deep connection here with these people because he, he's the one that went and planted the church there. He, he didn't go to revitalize or refresh. He went essentially to go penetrate with the gospel for the first time. Um, and one thing I think that is important to notice is if he says in the very beginning of the verse, he says, and you Philippians yourselves. And um, Peter O'Brien in his commentary on this text talks about in the original language, Paul's saying this term of affection. So it's, he's saying, and you Philippians know. So it'd be like if the, the missionaries in, in Turkey wrote us a letter and said, and you Raleighites know that you are participating with us in the gospel. Um, or you can think about it even more of a, uh, a relation context, whether it's, you know, um, husband, wife. So I don't often say my wife's name. So I don't say like, hey, Robin, will you please give me a fork? Or hey, Robin, will you um, go this place with me? We just, you know, we, we're so familiar with each other and comfortable with each other, we don't say each other's names a lot. You know, we may use a, uh, like a nickname, like, hey, honey, or hey, hottie, or whatever she feels like calling me. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I don't want any comments after this, by the way. <laughs> so, but sometimes we will say each other's names. So if we're trying to communicate something important or something affectionate, you know, it may say, you know, Robin, I'm so thankful God gave me you, or, or she may, you know. So sometimes you actually say each other's names, and that's similar to what Paul's doing here. He's saying, and you Philippians know, it's this term of affection that you love me, and I love you, and we have this deep connection in the gospel. Um, and so again, I think it, it kind of harkens back to Paul was not this just kind of driven robot that only cared about advancing the gospel. And uh, I mean, he was in a sense, but he was a real person. He had feelings. He, he felt he was warm. He loved people. Um, he had people that abandoned him. If you read other places that he's written in the text. So he, he did have real emotions and God worked through all of that. Emotions aren't bad. And so, um, you know, I think it's important again to kind of see these windows of normalcy in the scripture and feel like, uh, not feel like you have to uh, not be yourself and, and pursue Christ. Um, so let's go on to verse 16. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Um, if you read in, in Acts 17, they're kind of given this uh, outline of Paul. He goes to Philippi. Then it says he leaves there. He goes through those, those couple towns I mentioned. Then he ends up in Thessalonica. And then Acts 17, it says he was only there. He said he reasoned in the temple for three Sabbaths. So we don't know if he was there longer than three weeks. My suspicion is that he was. Um, Thessalonica was about 100 miles away from Philippi. So, you know, it, it takes several days to walk there and get there. Uh, so again, we don't know if he went straight there. The scripture doesn't give us the entire timeline on how things unfolded. Um, but he was there in Thessalonica and he was there long enough to get at least two gifts. He said, you sent, needs for, you sent um, help for my needs once and again. So he was there at least long enough to get more than two gifts from them, which again, I think would imply he was there longer than three weeks. Show up in a place, even if you're Paul with no believers, and plant a healthy church and leave in three weeks is a pretty tall task. So, um, so you know, again, you see them kind of early on jumping in, participating in the gospel, helping with Paul, and then you see them later send Epaphroditus to him, which we'll see in some of the later texts. So they, they kind of helped Paul early and often. Um, and this is where, we'll flesh this out more, but this is where we begin, I think, to see the beauty of coming together collectively and giving. And so we're all called to give individually um, to, you know, to the local church, to missions, to benevolence. 
Um, but there's something beautiful about coming together and giving collectively, agreeing to give something collectively. And our women's ministry a couple months ago had a Saturday where they got together in the morning and um, spent the whole, the whole time uh, preparing gifts to send to all of our missionary women. So some of those are single, some of those are wives of, of uh, others that are serving on the field. And so they wrote them notes that were encouraging. They made things for them. Um, you know, they sewed headbands and made some other things for them and sent them gifts. Basically, we sent out seven boxes to them just to encourage them, just to let me know that, let them know that we, we as a body, we love you. We're praying for you. We're because you know they don't wake up on Sunday morning like we do and show up and go to church or have community group during the week where they have all of this kind of fellowship and, and accountability and encouragement. So it, it's different. You know, their lives are very different, and sometimes it can be easy to feel disconnected. And so I think there's something beautiful here about coming together collectively and loving those that are, you know, advancing the gospel in another place. Um, another thing I think that's important here is this church was not perfect. So if you read over in verses 2 and 3, you have these two ladies that are, that are fighting. And it's a disagreement big enough and causing enough problems in the church that Paul feels that he's got to address it in the letter. And so don't, don't feel like, I think there are a couple of things here. One, there's not a perfect church. We're not going to be a perfect church. That doesn't mean that we can't serve along the way. If we wait for that to happen, we're never going to serve anybody. Um, the other thing is, there are going to be times in church where things are hard. And so, you know, if you're in any church long enough, you're going to go through a period of time where um, maybe you feel like you're dry or not getting enough or the church isn't meeting your needs or somebody's hurt your feelings. And so um, it doesn't mean that God can't still advance and work through minister to your heart and work through to bring glory to himself by ministering to other people and those outside. Um, and we see this here. They weren't perfect, but they were still serving. They were still coming together for the advancement of the gospel. And God was blessing that. He was using it. And, and that, I mean, that's essentially the, the essence of the gospel, that God is glorified through our imperfection. We're never going to be perfect here individually, much less as a church. But God can break through that sin and he can use that to bring himself glory. So if you're in a hard time, the, the, I think one of the worst things you can do is pull back. If you're in a hard time with the church, um, pulling back and not serving or not staying engaged is an easy way to, to kind of have the, the enemy come in um, you know, and get, get a stronghold and, and maybe move you on when you don't need to. Um, so I think there's encouragement here. The, the last thing I want to highlight in this passage, um, John Calvin in his commentary on this text talks about how the language here is different from the language of 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 18. So in that, in that section of scripture, Paul is telling the church, people who labor and serve in the gospel, essentially the pastors, you owe them to provide for them, compensation essentially. And so um, there's you know, a lot of biblical roots for having uh, paid people on staff. Um, and so, but, but the language Paul is using here is different. He's not saying that he was owed a gift. Certainly he was. He showed up and planted the church in Philippi. So they owed him a tremendous debt um, in the gospel, so to speak. But he's not saying you were re there. He's basically saying your spirit was not such that you were repaying me. It was a desire to give that we want to help in the participation of the gospel, not that we're trying, to re, we're trying to make good on a debt. And so I think you'll see as we go through the passage, that is even more encouraging for Paul because their desire is not just to, to, to make good, but their desire is to participate, to be right in the, in the front line of God advancing the gospel, um, which again, I think you see a, a lot of beauty in that. Um, so let's go on to verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul certainly uh, appreciated the gifts. It's not that they were unimportant or um, that he disregarded them. He did appreciate them. They did refresh him. Um, but he's more encouraged with, again, their heart being focused on wanting to advance the gospel and what the Spirit is doing. And so I think you see a connection here with Colossians 3, um, which again, you'll see a lot of 
of consistent themes through Paul's letter, which would make sense since he's basically consistently writing to newer churches to encourage them on how to pursue the gospel, how to relate to each other, and how to um, evangelize. So he says in, in Colossians 3, 2 through 3, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So again, he's more focused on eternity than he is on the things that he can see. And, and there's no reason, apart from God invading your heart and saving you, that you should have any of those thoughts. So take, I th- think, take heart, take encouragement. If you're having any desires at all to want to advance the gospel, that is the Spirit's work of regeneration in your heart. Because apart from that, there would be nothing. You would love sin. You would pursue sin. That's all, that's all any of us. We're all dead until God breathes life into us. I think also you can see Paul is this kind of proud papa that, he, that they're getting it, that um, they're not just you know, doing what he told them, but they're believing it. Um, and, and so I think, again, it can be helpful to kind of relate it to a, a real life example. So our oldest daughter, Katie Beth, is she just finished first grade. So she's going into second grade. And already, even in first grade, we've had to start dealing with some of the cattiness that girls deal with, which I don't have a lot of understanding for because guys are just sometimes more upfront and will tell each other what they think or punch each other in the face. But girls are different. And, um, you know, they will... Um, be cold toward each other, not to give each other the silent treatment or whatever. So um, we had a situation where we, Robin, set up a play date with one of the girls in her class, and they came over and played. And then, um, the, then after that at school, there were a couple other girls that, were, that saw Katie Beth and this girl playing together, and they were mad. And they said to the other girl, you betrayed us by having a play date with Katie Beth. This is kind of like, <laughs> you, have, you have crossed our family line and we're sending the mob after you. And so, um, so Katie Beth's telling us all this. And uh, so, you know, we're praying for wisdom. How do we deal with this? And um, besides, just tell them. Anyway, we're praying for wisdom. And so, um, so we just suggested to Katie Beth, why don't you just, you know, go to them and kind of talk about it and just say, we can be friends, and I, we can have play dates. You can have, you've had play dates without me. I didn't say that you betrayed. You know, it was just, we can all be friends with each other, and we can hang out together, and we can hang out separate. And uh, so seemed like she got it reasonably well, so she went. And, and I uh, can't remember if it was me or Robin. One of us picked her up and just kind of asked her how it went, and she said she just went up and said, you know, basically nobody betrayed anybody. We can all be friends. And, and then they kind of all were, I don't think they caught off guard. And so... <laughs> Uh, then it was normal after that, and they could just kind of move on. And so it was one of those situations in life where um, you actually had the right advice—you actually had the right advice to give as a parent, which is not always the case, unfortunately. You gave it, the child followed it, and then the result was good, which is not always the case either. And so you're—you know—you have this kind of moment of like, oh, maybe my daughter is maturing and getting it. Um, and so I think it's the same kind of thing for Paul here. It's just like. Oh, you, my children that I love in the gospel, you're, you're maturing and you want to see the gospel go forward. And there's nothing that brings me greater joy than that. Um, so again, you see these kind of warm feelings inside of Paul and he's very, you know, I, th- I think, it, again, for me anyway, I tend to kind of dehumanize him sometimes, but, but he wasn't. He was very real and had sin struggles just like we do. Um, the last thing, which is very exciting because you don't see it in the scriptures a lot, is the, this kind of idea of compound interest. So I know everybody gets excited about financial planning like I do. And um, so where Paul says, uh, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Um, O'Brien in his commentary again says, this is kind of an accounting metaphor uh, with present and future implications. And, and, and you kind of have this idea of, of interest upon interest upon interest growing and so if, if you think about God existing outside the bounds of time, so he created time and he's outside of time, it kind of makes more sense that when he works to bring himself glory and you have this aroma in the gospel, that it can just kind of continue perpetually, that it doesn't have a, a one-time kind of start and stop idea. And so if you've ever, as I'm sure you have, played around with spreadsheets to see how compound interest works, right? I know it's exciting. And, uh, but then it just kind of gets exponential at the end and gets kind of ridiculous, right? So I can see everybody's thinking about having a, you know, 
compound interest rave after this is over. Um, but when you think of, I mean, it does just kind of, you know, mushroom out. And so th that's the idea and the language here that Paul's using is this kind of um, glorification of God upon glorification of God. And when you think about heaven, it's a similar concept. So we're going to have a seminar later this year about heaven. And heaven is going to be us feeling really fully for the first time our purpose of, of glorifying God. And it's going to be so deep, deep, deepening and joyously satisfying. And, and we're going to, that's going to spiral and increase. The more we experience the God, the longer we're with God in eternity, the more our joy is going gonna, is gonna to increase and well up. It's the same kind of idea here that when we serve, when God uses us to serve others, we're not just serving them, that he's working through us to bring himself glory, this kind of pleasant aroma um, that we'll see in, in verse 18. Um, so let's go to verse 18. Uh, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Brian says here in um, the language that Paul's using again is this kind of, I'm fully paid and I'm issuing you a receipt. So when he says, I've received full payment, I'm fully paid and I'm now giving you a receipt back. So um, our family is on a high deductible health insurance plan, which means when we go to the doctor, they never know how much to charge us because they have to file with their insurance first and then we have to pay afterward, which means we get all of these extra bills in the mail that we have to take time to pay. So it's pretty awesome. But... Um, and a lot of the doctor's offices are not online to, to pay. So you have to call between 8.30 and 5, but not between 12 and 1 because they're closed for lunch. So you call in these windows to make your payment. And then they always say, do you want me to send you a receipt in the mail? And because I'm paranoid, I always say yes. And so then about a week later, we get something from the doctor, and I think it's another bill. And then I'm like, oh, it's the receipt. So I'll put it in the file because I'm a nerd. And then if anybody ever asks, I can pull it out uh, and show them that I paid. And so it's the same kind of idea that you've paid and you've even been sent back a receipt. So Paul's saying, I'm not lacking in anything that you gave me. Um, and Spurgeon speculates in his commentary that, that, that they didn't send these kind of extravagant gifts to Paul, that they were probably giving out of their poverty. So it's not that, that, that they've come and, and, you know, dump trucked all these really cool things on Paul. You know, it probably wasn't a ton, but Paul's saying, again, because of the desire that you even want to participate... I'm so fully satisfied, you know, that I, that I can't even begin. And I think we see a lot of, um, again, the beauty of, of using our resources together, whether it's giving to the local church and then money that we designate in our budget to use for missions or you giving to missions or benevolence. But I think we see a root here for short-term mission trips, the way that we do it at TCC. So when Robin and I came to TCC, all the other churches we had been at, when, we, when you would go on mission trips, the whole thing was about doing stuff. Uh, just how much could you do? So we're, how many flyers could we pass out? How many people can we share the gospel with? How many teeth can we pull? If you, if you have a dentist with you, how many teeth can you pull? Um, how many eyeglasses can we hand out? So it was always this kind of come back and report all the stuff that you did. And I'm not saying that those kinds of, of mission trips aren't biblical, but I think you see a root here for the way that we do it. So we were surprised to learn that mission trips here the team actually goes to the missionaries that are serving and ministers to them. So instead of kind of bypassing them and going to people they don't have relationships with, they minister to the people who have the relationships, hoping that that will fuel their desire for the gospel to go on and spread. And so, you know, uh, in the past, um, Pastor Sean or Pastor Travis would go and maybe lead a marriage retreat for the missionaries. Again, they don't get a lot of the fellowship that we get through the week, through community group through showing up to church together. So a lot of times they're very hungry for discipleship. They're hungry for fellowship with believers. Because when you show up in an area where, like Botman, where nobody knows Christ, um, you, you can't have an O2 group. You can't have accountability. You can't do other things because literally the people aren't there to exist. And so I think um, a lot of the ways, and, and be praying again this week for about 10 days, there'll be a team in China ministering to the Cokers and others um, encouraging them. So pray that God will use that time to build their faith in Christ and, and to spur them on in the work that they're doing. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when God, when God uses us to bless others, it goes beyond that. It's actually a sacrifice offering we see here that's pleasing to God. This idea of this kind of pleasing smell that, that comes up. 
um, to God that satisfies him and, and brings him glory. Um, I think also we see in this text that we are stewards, not owners. I think it's important to remember because when you approach giving as a steward versus an owner, the motivation can be very different. So it's important to remember that everything that we see, every created thing is made by God. Even the next breath that we draw is a gift from God. And so um, when you give as an owner, there can, be ten- there can be temptation toward resentment because if you feel like you're giving more than your fair share, you can resent other people who you don't think are doing enough and maybe want to tell them about that in a way that's not glorifying to the Lord. Um, or it can lead to a sense of pride of we're doing you know, so much compared to other people. And, and so when you approach it as an owner, it's how much am I going to give to God versus when you come as a steward, it's more how can I, God's, these are God's resources. How does he want me to allocate them? And the motivation is very different because then he is the one who's doing everything. And you're kind of acknowledging in the beginning that he's the source of what's happening. And you're just, through obedience, bringing glory to him. And so there's not this, there's not this sense of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm ahead of where these other people are spiritually because I'm, you know, I'm doing more than they are. Um, and Jesus is very stern on this. If you read the Gospels, usually his harshest words are for the religious leaders because um, their lives, he didn't have a lot they could point to on outwardly, but inside they were a mess and, and they were not bringing glory to the Lord. And so in Matthew, he's addressing this issue when he's encouraging his disciples uh, against these kinds of practices. He says in, in uh, 6, 1 through 4, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. And hypocrites there, he's talking about the religious leaders. Hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. So you see kind of that opposite of the compound interest. They're giving how to start and stop. They gave, they told everybody about it, they received praise, and um, Jesus said they have received, it's closed, past tense, received their reward. It's over. Versus this other idea of kind of your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Um, This ongoing kind of compound interest idea of giving, and God using it to bless you, to mature you, using it to bless others, and using it to be this kind of eternal glory to himself. So it's a very, very different um, picture of when we're kind of motivated as owners versus stewards. And, and another thing I want to caution, um, I've been in the local church a long time um, at this point in my life. I know I probably, I look like I'm in my early 20s, but I'm really not. And so um, I've been in the church a long time. And I've heard this phrase over and over and over of um, you can't outgive God. And, and I think that that is true, but the, the inclination and the context that I've heard it in mostly is usually this kind of uh, man-centered of, you know, God needs my resources or, or um, you know, if I give, God will bless me. And I don't think that's what this is saying because he does say... Um, that he's well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. And if you go on in verse 19, he talks about supplying every need of yours. And so it's, it's not that um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show off my resources by outgiving God. Um, it's, it's more of, again, I'm going to be a steward. I'm going to allocate as God leads me to allocate. Uh, I, one other thing here that we see, a couple other things I want to highlight that I think are important. Again, we see collective giving being rooted in this passage. So Epaphroditus shows up with gifts where he says, I've received, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, that you there is plural. It's not directed at one specific person. And so, um, you know, he's thankful that they've come together. They submitted to each other. I'm sure there were people that wanted to send things that didn't get included or thought things were that, that were included shouldn't have been included. But they had come together, they had worked it out, and they had sent Epaphroditus on the way to give the gifts that God wanted them to give. Um, and then when you think about God being one God, three persons, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, those 
one God and three persons work together in perfect submission and harmony and unity to bring glory to God, which is, which is the most um, satisfying thing in all of life. And so when, when we see the Trinity working perfectly, Christ coming, he says, I don't do anything that I don't see my father doing. You see him obeying God perfectly, knowing that that is the way to bring salvation, to bring the most glory. When we see the Trinity working together, when we can come together as sinful people, none of us, not anyone individually, is going to make it through this life without sin or make it through the day without sinning, much less coming together collectively. When we come together collectively and make decisions, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be messy. But by, if, if we're willing to, through humility, submit to each other and trust that God is working, then we're emulating the Trinity and bringing God glory even through that decision-making process because that's not how Outside of Christ, that's not how decisions get made. Most often they get made through whoever has the most power or the most influence or the majority. You don't see this kind of joyful, submitting and loving attitude coming together. Um, and giving, one other thing I wanted to just mention is giving is not the same for everybody. So God has given us different financial uh, means to steward. He's given us different talents, different abilities, different levels of time. So giving is not going to look the same for everybody. And again, it's very important not to get caught up in this ownership comparison idea, but, but through faith, as we're not led by a system of laws or legalism, through faith to just pursue what God's calling us to do. And I think you see that here in that the gifts that God, that the Philippians, that God gave through the Philippians to Paul are not mentioned. And I think that that's God's grace toward us. It's intentionally vague. Because I think it would, be a t it would be a temptation for us to kind of have this idolatry of, uh, you know, hey, if you really want to be most glorifying to God, you will send the missionaries sandals or, you know, whatever it is that they sent to Paul. I don't know. And so I think it's, you know, cultures change and uh, develop and customs change and develop. And so I think God's intentionally vague here so that we don't, we aren't tempted to say, oh, well, this is what the Philippians gave. So if we really want to love then, you know, we'll send them a plume to write their letters and not a laptop or whatever. And so, again, I think it's some grace that God's giving us there. Um, so let's talk about verse 19. Uh, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So there's two really important things here that are very freeing for me when I think about them. Um, it says, God will supply to every need of yours according to his riches and glory. The first is that God is inexhaustible. He can literally speak things that do not exist into being. So we do not have to worry about God running out of resources for us or for other people, regardless of whether we feel like their situation looks dire or abundant or whatever. We don't have to worry about God running out of resources. And we don't have to worry about God misallocating resources. So um, you don't have to worry that God's going to shortchange you because he overgave to somebody else. These two things, I think, are very difficult because we don't really have any examples in life to pattern this after. So if you think about even the richest people in the world, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, there are ends to what their wealth can buy and what it can do. And if you think about... Um, I'll use the government as, because it's, it's a huge entity with um, about a $3 trillion budget every year, which is hard to even think about how big that is. And whether you're, you know, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Anarchist, whatever, you, I don't think anybody would say, raise their hand and be real excited to say, yes, I think the government perfectly allocates its resources to every single person. And so, you know, whether you're talking about even the time and energy that you give to your kids, you're not capable of perfectly allocating that correctly. So there's no example that we can look to, but this should free us up whenever we're giving, whether we feel like God's called us to do a lot in our minds or a little, that he's inexhaustible and that he can't make a mistake. Now, you can't be tempted. I think you could be tempted to say, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. I don't think that he's saying here that giving makes you immune from poverty. If you look through scripture, if you look through church history, 
You don't have to go very far to find a lot of people that have loved Jesus and have served him with a pure heart, spent a lot of their lives, if not all their life, in poverty. And so giving doesn't make you immune from poverty, but um, I think there are a couple of things, whether we're in poverty or not in poverty, but specifically if we're in poverty, that we can take heart in is, um, one, we haven't made a mistake. So we didn't, we didn't give too much away that now um, God doesn't have anything else left to allocate to us, and so we've ended up in poverty. The other thing is, even if we're in poverty, um, we are all going to end up with God in heaven, enjoying the satisfaction in our soul that we'll never experience here on earth because of sin, that we get glimpses of, but eternal, perfect satisfaction. I was talking about earlier where we, we our joy in God will literally spiral up for eternity. That we'll never become tired. We'll never become um, exhausted with our joy. That it, will, that it will literally increase. So even if we are poor in this life, we can trust that God's using it to bring himself the most glory. So rooted back to that Romans 8 passage we were looking at, where God didn't withhold his son. He's not going to withhold anything that we need if he didn't withhold Jesus. And if we're in poverty, it's temporary. We're going to spend eternity as sons and daughters of the king with nothing perfect withheld from us. And so that should provide us with a lot of hope and a lot of joy. And if you read much about martyrs or other people who've suffered through Christian history, the deep sense of joy that they have, even if they get brought out of that to a point where they do have physical possessions, is so sweet that most of them say they wouldn't even trade it. And if you read Job, he talks about knowing God before he lost all of his children and all of his possessions, but really understanding the Most High after he had gone through that. So the fellowship, the grace with Christ was so much sweeter than any comfort that he had prior to that. Um, I do want to talk about, though, I don't want to make light of God's lavish riches because God is um, infinitely wealthy in terms of holiness, purity, joy. And I think a, a, an earthly picture can be helpful here. So when you think about lavish lavish riches, you probably get an image in your mind, whether that is a big house with a bunch of pimped out cars in front, or if it's spending money you don't normally spend money on, on things that you don't normally spend money on. Maybe it's, you know, seeing all the Broadway shows that come through Raleigh or um, buying, you know, expensive clothes or taking trips to exotic locations that you, you would never, you know, be able to afford to travel to or going to these high-profile sports events like the Super Bowl. If you ever watch the Super Bowl, they kind of will pan to all the celebrities that are there, you know, that could have, that either have the resources, the connections, or the money to get to that place that, you know, most of us could never get to. So you probably have some image in your mind, either of a certain lifestyle or certain being able to spend money on things you don't normally spend money on. Um, and so for me, when I think of kind of, you know, um, unending wealth, I picture like a banquet room with, with just tables of all the food that I love, perfectly prepared. And, and if, if I were to eat any of it, that somebody would immediately run back out with another plate um, to replace it. And so and, and another thing that I don't often spend money on, not never, but not super often, is um, beef jerky, which is lavish, right? So, I mean, you have your definition, I have mine. Uh, and I realize this is my second consecutive food example, so um, I'll just go ahead and answer your unsaid question that I do not have a food idol. Um, but when you think about beef jerky, go with me on the beef jerky thing for a second. So when you see it at the store, it's like $5.99 usually for a five-ounce package. Well, if you do the math on that, that's like 20 bucks a pound. You can get a really nice steak for 20 bucks a pound. So I always have a hard time bringing myself to want to get beef jerky, which is this like dried up horse meat that I know, even though I like it, when I know I can get a really nice steak, you know, for the same kind of price per pound. So you can see now my torment as a financial planner and going to the grocery store. <laughs> um, but it, but I, um, I say all that to say, so whatever it is in your mind, right? Maybe yours is in beef jerky. I don't know, maybe it's Mountain Dew or chocolate milk or whatever, or something non-food related. Um, but when you think of this idea of kind of lavish wealth or being able to spend money on things that you don't, want to, that you don't normally do, even in those things, you know, I mean, if you were to come to my house and unload a dump truck of beef jerky, after about day three, I'd probably be puking and, and not ever want to eat any again. But God isn't like that. He's this kind of unending increasing 
joy and satisfaction that we'll be bringing glory to him through eternity, which is what we were created to do. And it's just going to increase and increase and that it's impossible to calculate, um, you know, what his actual, uh, what we'll actually experience with him. Um, So, and I had a, uh, I had a, O'Brien in his commentary said, um, this verse 19 and 20 form the climax to the letter that complete Paul's prayer in a sense by leaving them with the knowledge that it is impossible to calculate the blessing and riches available through Jesus here on earth and into it with him within, into eternity. So it's the same kind of ongoing idea of God brings glory to himself forever and that brings forever increasing joy and, and happiness. Um, the last thing, when you look at Verse 19, Paul says, and my God will supply, supply every need of yours. So he's kind of this my God possessive, but also um, possessive to the Philippians. He'll supply every need of yours. And so it, it's this idea, Spurgeon in his commentary, I thought put it really well. He said, it's Paul's God who took care of the Philippians, and it is Paul's God who takes care of you and me. So again, if Paul seems kind of superhuman or, or unmatched in his desire to advance and promote the gospel, God is the same. He's perfect. He's always existed perfectly. He's dealing with, he dealt with Paul perfectly and he's dealing with you perfectly. So it's the same God with the same power and the same salvation that's available to us as it's available to Paul. And I found that very encouraging. Um, verse 20, to kind of wrap up this main instruction section, and then he has some greetings, which I think have some good instruction for us as well. He says, to our God, and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the whole purpose of Paul writing this letter to the Philippians is that they will bring glory to God. Not their glory, not his glory, that they'll bring glory to God. And um, bringing glory to God is hard enough when that's our focus. Because Paul talks about how rampant sin is. And so if that's not our focus, it's impossible and things are going to spiral quickly. In Galatians 5, he's talking about um, the works of the flesh. So when, you're, when your heart is not focused on glorifying God, when it's focused on other things, whatever it may be. And he says in Galatians 5, 19 through 20, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a pretty nasty list. And that's, that's what we're born into, apart from God breathing life into us. And so Galatians, he leaves us with hope, though. If you read before that, he talks about the Spirit is capable of overcoming sin and that he can set our hearts on the desires. He can set our desires on the desires of God, which, again, is impossible in ourselves. Only the Spirit can do that. Um, giving is also evidence of gospel regeneration. So um, he talks about them wanting to participate in the gospel, God receiving glory forever. Um, so you can't earn your way to God by giving, but when God works in your heart to give, take heart, be encouraged. He, that's evidence of the Spirit's work in your heart, that you would desire ever to help anybody is work of the Spirit's in your heart um, because naturally we're not. We're sinful and selfish. Um, I'll be a little brief here with these last closing verses. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So again, you see this warmness in Paul. He has this deep feeling for the brothers and the sisters in, in Philippi. And those with him, certainly all of them didn't know those in Philippi, but they send their warm greetings. And you see the household of Caesar. Now, when it says the household of Caesar, it doesn't necessarily mean Caesar's wife and kids. The household of Caesar was huge, and it included slaves, soldiers, servants, essentially all those that were kind of employed for, his, for the work of Rome, for, for his um, advancement of Rome. And so nothing is beyond the reach of God. So even this, this man who was, um, you know, not, if you go back, it was the Emperor Nero. He's not a nice guy. Um, God is reaching those that are serving him with the gospel so that even in his household, which is set against 
the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed and people are being regenerated. Um, the last couple of things I want to uh, highlight are, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit in verse 23. That's a really good word for us. We need God's grace and um, we're sinful people. And so as part of the church, you should expect to be hurt. You should expect that I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to hurt your feelings. You should expect your community group leaders, other leaders in the church, visitors, members. You should expect that people are going to do things that hurt your feelings, that you don't like, that you don't agree with. And if, if your expectation is not that, then you, know, you might fall into this kind of serial church jumping from one place, looking for the perfect church, which doesn't exist. And so... It's only by grace that we can stand. Grace will overpower and it will glorify um, God. And I want to read a couple quotes that I thought summed this up really good. One is from uh, uh, O'Brien and one is from Spurgeon. Um, it says, God can work through our hurts to deepen fellowship with him. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the source of grace, bestows it freely on the congregation at Philippi. It will sustain the community for it is by grace alone that they will stand. And Spurgeon says, all his saving grace, all that redeems me in Christ, all his saving grace, all that redeems from guilt, from sin, from trouble, all that which saves us with an everlasting salvation, may that be yours to the fullest. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you work through us, that though we are sinful, and though we are wicked apart from you, that you can breathe life into us, that you can make us desire to love other people, to pray for them, to bear their burdens, to share with them. And I just glorify you for that, Lord. I pray we would never try to take credit for that. And I pray that your grace would be increasing in our hearts all the more. And I pray, Lord, that when we sin against each other, and the enemy wants to use that for for tearing down the church, I know that you can use it to deepen the relationship even if the sin had never happened, that you can bring forgiveness, you can bring redemption of relationships. And so I just pray, Father, that we would pursue you and I pray that we would desire to see you glorified and built up and I pray that our joy would increase and may we glorify you through this time of Lord's Supper. In your name, amen.